Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Football might be over, but college basketball and the NHL are in full swing. And the only place you should be betting on these sports is at betonline.ag. BetOnline even covers awards, TV shows, and reality TV. BetOnline has hundreds of props with real-time odds on almost anything you can imagine. And of course, the 24-hour online casino. Head to the website or use your mobile device to sign up today and receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. That's betonline.ag. BetOnline, your online sportsbook experts. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to my podcast. I'm your host, Polina Edmonds. And today on the pod, I'm super happy to introduce our special guest. We're going to be talking about a number of things, including judging today on this episode. So happy to introduce former USFS judge, Carrie Tremble. Thanks for coming on today. So it's great to, to be here, Polina. I'll just clarify i'm i'm a usfs judge on leave this year okay so we'll see if if i come back um it's still to be determined but i'm really excited to be here today i'm also a professor of clinical mental health counseling at the university of san diego so i do have a number of interests so it's really exciting to be joined joining you today on the podcast i'm excited to hear all the cool things you have to say So how did you get into judging initially and what advice do you have for athletes who want to become judges? So initially I was an adult skater. I had always wanted to skate as a kid, but go figure where I grew up in Wisconsin, there was no rink within an hour and a half of where I lived in such a winter state. So when I was in graduate school, I started skating and I was an ice monitor with my club because you always have to do a certain number of volunteer hours. And that was just helping me pay for ice. And then one of my coaches asked if I would come be a guest judge at one of their learn to skate events, because you don't have to be a judge to judge through the preliminary level. You can be kind of like a a test judge or a trial judge or just a guest judge. And one of the accountants at that event just asked me why I wasn't a judge yet and why I wasn't trial judging. And so I signed up since I was doing uh, ice dance and I was taking lessons in freestyle. They'd said, you know, since you're doing dance, you should be a dance judge too, because there really aren't. There's such a shortage of dance judges in the U.S. So I started trial judging for both. I actually don't recommend people trial judge for singles, pairs, and dance at the same time. I I don't think people realize the time commitment and the amount of money it costs just to do all that traveling. So I, through getting my bronze appointment and my silver appointment, and then I've been pursuing my golds, which is a whole nother story, but I was doing them both at the same time. And when you have appointments in both, you get invited to more competitions because they can put you in more chairs, but because they can put you in more chairs, it wasn't unusual for me to have 17 hour days at the rink for competitions. Wow. (laughs) And so that's just something for people to think about. If you're trying to pursue multiple tracks at the same time, the amount of time and the amount of money, um, I think through getting my 
silver appointments. I probably spent out of pocket somewhere around $20,000 in trial judging, just Mm -hmm. traveling to different competitions and test sessions and judges schools. So it's definitely something people don't really think about. Mm -hmm. And they think about how much money it costs to be an athlete, but then in wanting to be a judge, you kind of start all over again. Interesting. Yeah. I never thought of it like that. Well, the IGS system, what are your thoughts on what the positive and the negatives are for it as a judge yourself? I think there are some definite positives. One of the things I like about IJS is you don't have to sit here and think about how did Polina do and how am I going to compare that to the next skater? And when you're judging preliminary girls, there might be 30 girls in the event and at preliminary, they're all doing the exact same elements. So then it's kind of like, well, who fell how many times? And then it comes down to what what kind of presentation do you like at that level? Whereas in Mm -hmm. IJS, you're just putting in the numbers of what you saw. Here was the grade of execution. Here's how I saw the components. That skater's done. You're on to the next one. So in some way, I think IJS is easier when you have a lot of skaters. The other thing is, is when it's 6.0, you can really get boxed in of, I have no more room between skater A and skater B to put skater C. So now it's mine to put them first or fourth. You don't have to worry so much about that math with IJS. But then I think some of the complicating factors with IJS is especially when you're trial judging the things to think about, it's hard enough to put in a GOE as an element happens and you're having to be thinking about components and putting all that in. But when you're a trial judge at the end of an event, there's a round table. And so it'll be Polina, you gave this skater a plus three on her triple lutz. Why did you give a plus three? So you're sitting here trying to put in all your GOE. You're trying to think of all of your components, but then you're having to list all of your plus and minus bullets for every single element. And then what are all your pluses and minuses for every component? And so I think sometimes people either become really good at judging components or they become really good at judging GOE, but sometimes it can be really hard to do both. Mm. especially when it's like let's track everything of okay that person took off on the wrong edge but it came out it was unexpected it came out of choreography it had good height and there was flow in the landing and it was timed at the music but then she was maybe a little bit short of rotation and so you're having to instantly have all of the plus and minus bullets for every element memorized and then the rules change every year So you can't ever get comfortable with what's my thought process because as soon as you get comfortable with it, the rules change. That's true. Hmm. I like as a skater, I think the new system is great when judges use it honestly. Um, But yeah, unfortunately there's a lot of loopholes, a lot of um, manipulation can happen in the GOEs of things or, you know, the tech panel, not calling certain edges or under rotations or also manipulations in the component score. What is your experience with that as a judge? Uh, One of the things I see and that I try to really watch myself on uh, when I was judging and we'll, we'll see, I've got to make a decision by July 1 when the new season starts, but somebody could have a nine on a 10 point scale for skating skills, but that doesn't mean they should be at a nine for transitions. 
if there's just a bunch of three turns or it's just empty skating where you're not seeing a variety of turns you're not seeing anything going in you're seeing telegraph jumps why are they still getting a nine for transitions and sometimes you'll see the higher the technical element score the higher the component score Sometimes yeah. it seems like they're, they're wedded together. We're just an example for me. And, and it's not that I'm trying to throw any judge under the bus, but as someone who's trying to, to move up as a judge, what's confusing is when you see a skater at Worlds who's 15 and clearly doesn't have the performance capability of someone who's 24 and they're getting the exact same mark or the one with the higher um, technical element score is even getting a higher mark in those components. And it just doesn't seem like it matches what actually was happening on the ice. Absolutely. So do you think that has to do with individual judging and their, or like judges and their personal education in the sport over what they're specifically supposed to be judging? Or does it have to do with, we're going to, we're going to follow whatever is trending right now. Like if, this girl's a favorite to win. We're all supposed to judge her this way. And I can't just go against the pack because then I'm not going to be selected for the next event. I think it's a little of both. I once was told that, so not everyone might know that there's two tracks of judges. There's test judges and then there's competition judges. And within test judges, there's bronze, silver, and then gold. And then for competition, it's regional, sectional, national, international, and then IJS. And I was once told by an international level judge, he didn't have his ISU appointment yet, but he said that bronze test judges in the US are better trained than some of the ISU judges from other countries. And so it just makes me wonder, what is is the standardization and training for judges around the world? Because it's up to each country to appoint their national level judges. And then that's where the pool of international and ISU judges come from. They do have to pass an international written and practical exam, but it doesn't mean that the training they got to take those exams were standardized. So a Canadian judge could be educated much different than the American judge than from the French judge. And then I think some of it is, gosh, I hate to say that even for trial judges, there is a little bit, and you're never supposed to look at who is on the actual panel. You're always told you're supposed to judge what you see regardless of who the actual judges are. But trial judges and people trying to move up also want to get their next appointment. And so it's like, I want to judge what I see, but also what is going to get me that next appointment. And then when, when you're on the panel, there is round tables, even for official judges after events. And so if you're out of line with the rest of the panel, it's going to be, well, Polina, you need to justify why you gave this skater a five for transitions, but everyone else gave an eight. Well, at that point, could you say this skater honestly deserves a five or do you have to cover up your tracks and like, just start saying, okay, they're, they're an eight. Everyone else gave them an eight. Like, how do you go about that if you're trying to be honest? So it depends on how the referee handles the round table, but I've known of one judge who I can't remember if it was an international event or an ISU event. I think it was an international event and had given somebody a really low mark in one of the components and was asked about it. And the person said, well, here's why I gave that. And 
the referee said, well, you're one of nine who did that. And the person said, well, here's why. And the referee said, well, of the nine judges, you're the only one I think was correct. Oh, so that's nice. It can happen the other way. But at that point, the, the score is already done, right? So even though they may be correct behind the scenes, the damage is done, so to speak, with like improper points being awarded. Absolutely. And it's the same thing with technical panel calls where once the event's over, there is no, oh my gosh, you called this spin as a level three, but it should have gotten four. You can't go back and fix that. And there was one event where I think in a pair event, a spin had been called a pair combination spin, but upon replay, only one of the partners changed feet. So it should have just been called a combination spin, not a change combination spin, but they got the points for a change combination spin because that's how it had been called. But once an event's Mm -hmm. over, there is no going back and fixing a protocol. Yeah, I definitely think that's a huge flaw in the skating system because there's a lot of times that stuff like that happens and then skaters are just left in the dust without any real sense of reward um, if they were scored too low or vice versa, we're giving people medals who maybe didn't deserve that placement, but it was a mix up in the judging or the tech panel, but specifically with things like edge calls, those are super problematic because it's the tech panel's job to call the edge call, of course. Um, But so many skaters are getting awarded the full points for the wrong edges. And we see this on TV on the Mm -hmm. biggest level. And it's so disheartening for young skaters to be watching this and watching, you know, people perform the wrong edge and still win, not getting called for it. As a judge, if you see that it's the wrong edge, are you supposed to score lower, like in the GOE, because that's what you're looking at? Um, But how does that fall into place if they're not getting called for it in the tech panel? Judges are supposed to catch that. So part of the thing you have to do to become a singles pairs judge is there is a test called an element ID. So when you're at a competition, you're supposed to have someone from the judges education and training committee, a jet with you so that you can compare apples to apples because the people on the tech panel, there's three of them making the call and they have replay. Whereas when you're a trial judge doing element ID, you don't have that. And so you are supposed to be able to know on a protocol, you'll see either the exclamation point for unclear edge or the E for a blatant edge call. They don't expect judges to be able to differentiate between an unclear and a blatantly wrong edge, but they do expect that you would at least put the exclamation point that it's not a clear edge. And then you are supposed to deduct for that. If the panel calls it an exclamation point or an E, you're supposed to deduct. And based on last year's rules, minus three to minus four, if it was called, um, but minus one to minus two, if it wasn't. So it, you, the judges don't have as much freedom to go as low on the GOE if it's not called by the tech panel. So what happens if you're a judge, you're at this big event, there's this favorite skater that's out on the ice and you watch them nail a jump, but you can tell it's clearly the wrong edge. You're the only one that scored them low and everybody else scored them high and the tech panel doesn't call them. 
what happens then? Can you fight for yourself? Can you call the other judges, the tech panel out? Or are you just supposed to sit there and accept that this, like the integrity of the actual element is being compromised? I'll only speak for me, but I will say Mm -hmm. all day that person was not on the correct edge. If it's a Lutz and I saw an inside edge, if it's a flip and I saw an outside edge, I'm going to ding for that. The other thing that's come up in judging, and I think this is being addressed more now, but one of the things that just drives me nuts as a judge are toe axles. So if someone does anything triple toe combo and they take off going forward, there haven't really been under rotation deductions for pre-rotation. And I've actually gotten called out for that in trial judging of like, why did you give such a low GOE on this? I said, because they pre-rotated, it was a toe axle. And I'm not going to give positive GOE on that because it's an incorrect execution of that jump. So I, I think that's being addressed more now that people shouldn't be toe axling, but that wasn't really something that was previously addressed. But to me, if someone does a correct triple, let's triple toe, they should get more points than someone who does a triple, let's triple toe axle. Definitely. If, if you are in that position where you're marking it as you see, but then the rest of the judges are doing something differently, what happens to you as a judge who's trying to move up in the ranks? You might not move up. And, and I, I've seen that for me for test appointments. There is quantitative direction on paper of what you're supposed to do and numbers you're supposed to hit and percentages and you do ABC and D you're supposed to get your appointment for competition appointments. There is nothing like that. So it's that they might say, depending on if you're an accelerated or a non-accelerated. So basically it has to do with, were you a competitor? How high of a competitor, how high level of a competitor you were or how high level of a coach for your skaters. And so they'll say, maybe you have to judge a minimum of two regionals to get your appointment. So you'll go judge your two regionals, but then after every event, you have this round table and the, the judges who are there put notes on you. And then they just say, do you think this person should get an appointment or not? And then the regional vice chair for a regional appointment or the sectional vice chair for sectional and national appointments will look at all that. And they kind of just decide, does this person get their appointment this year or not? And so there can be a lot of, I didn't mark like everybody else, but here's why. And they either decide to give you an appointment or they don't. Yeah. There's definitely a political climbing system in the judges, the judges world. It's semi-similar to the skating, actual skaters that are experiencing all of that stuff happen as well. Yeah. A lot of skaters have voice that they wish tech panels would be consistent in calling during the same event and that judging panels would be truthful on component marks on the day of competition. So as a judge, what can you tell us about skaters who get huge component marks based off of reputation rather than their day of competing? It's such a hard question because to me, integrity is everything. At the end of the day, if I have nothing, I have my integrity and I know I did what was right. And I I think part of that might just come from, it's a holdover from the 6.0 days where it was like, I remember how I said, it's hard to try to compare all these skaters and figure out 
okay, now I'm boxed in. I have nowhere else to put this person. And so judges would go watch practice just to have an idea of what elements are people doing because they didn't have a tech panel back in the day listing all of that for them. People didn't turn in planned program content sheets. And so they had to have some idea of what to expect from a competitor. But today, is there really a reason to have official practices that judges go to? If people are turning in their planned program content sheet, you know what to expect, but you're also not supposed to compare one skater to another anymore. You're supposed to compare each skater to the book of criteria. And I don't know that I, I really see that. Um, mm -hmm. That for me is just like, I, I don't think I would want to go see people in a lower level local events. You don't, judges don't really go to official practices. Some, some maybe, um, more in qualifying competitions and club competitions, but is there really a purpose for that anymore? Maybe for the technical panel, but what is it that the judges are needing to see ahead of time? Yeah, there's definitely a lot of comparing going on both during the actual competition and behind the scenes, all of it is definitely still alive and well, very present. It, and it, it is. And it might just be like in the U.S., there can be some, well, we need this person to win because if we want them to get a medal, they have to go in as the U.S. national champion. And this is a person we think has the best chance of doing that mm -hmm. rather than just, well, but who had the best skate today? <laughs> and the other thing I question is when you look at, and you can't compare one competition to another because the panels are different. Mm -hmm. But if I look at some, someone put up basically the, the, the person who won the Olympics in 2014 for ladies singles and put up basically side by sides of the performance from Europeans and the performance for the Olympics, choreography didn't change the transitions didn't change, nothing changed in this program, but the components at the Olympics were way higher than the components from a month prior at Europeans. Mm -hmm. And how is that possible? Yeah, that was another one of my questions. It's kind of known that when you start off in the season, you know, you're competing at Grand Prix events throughout the fall, your points are definitely going to be lower than the second half of the season when you're at the bigger events. Um, and some could say it's because you've had more practice, so your programs flow better and all of that kind of stuff. But really, if you're hitting a clean program in October and you hit another clean program in March, why is the point gap so big? Or if you put up someone's layback spin from Europeans and then you put up their layback spin from Olympics and you put them in side-by-side -side screens and it's the same spin, same centering, same speed, same number of revolutions on the same time as the music. How is it, and in that Olympics, it was still on the plus up to plus three scale, but how is it a plus one at one event? And then it's like a plus three, four weeks later when nothing changed. Exactly. <laughs> what do you think needs to be most changed about the current judging system? I think there needs to be a lot more transparency in what do you, especially for competition appointments, of what do you actually need to get an appointment? What do you need to move up? And for people who actually are judges, I think it there needs to be more encouragement of just because someone's skating skills is a nine doesn't mean that 
their transitions are a nine. Why can't you have a five in transitions and a nine in performance? Um, but I think it's, it's hard when we look at many of the judges are, and I don't want to be age discriminatory, but many of them are getting older. You have to give up an ISU appointment at 70, but many of them then retire from ISU, but they still retain their national appointments. But how do we get new blood in the system? How do we get any new points of view? And then when you look at just the lack of transparency of gaining an appointment, unfortunately, a lot of people just quit. They, they see all the politics, they see all the money they're spending, that getting the appointment is not within their control. They can do everything that is asked of them and not get an appointment. So they get discouraged and they quit. And then we're still in that position of, it's the same judges judging every single week, the whole season. The season kind of starts in April, even though the official season starts July 1st, club competitions for the new season start in April. And then they last through October when regionals happen. And many judges judge every single weekend for six, seven months because there isn't a pool to pick from. And then that's why they're also at the rink for 16 hours in a day. They're there from six in the morning till 10, 11 at night. And sometimes I think judges just get tired. I think judges are human too. And I think sometimes things can be missed when people are just tired. There's, there's just so much, especially when you're working that many hours, I get tired sitting in a rink for two hours watching a competition and that's just one event. (laughs) So yeah. yeah. People get tired and they get cold and they get hungry. And it's just like, I've been here. This is my third day in a row of being at the rink for 14 or 16 hours. And I think sometimes that's where mistake happens when you have a fresher panel. I think I think skaters deserve that as, as a counselor. I don't work. I don't see 14 clients in a day because the back half would not get my, the same energy the front half did. Mm-hmm. And I sometimes think that happens at competitions. And if you look at schedules, it's oftentimes the higher level events are later in the day Yeah, and they're, they're not getting the freshest judges. Definitely. We all know the elements that, you know, every skater brings and how clean they skate on the day of and how difficult and amazing it can be if they hit it all. But there's a lot of athletes that get really low points after competing super well. And it's just because of that inner judging tech panel manipulation. To me, that's just doing mental abuse on the athletes because they're putting in so much work and it's just being taken away, not for their own merit, but because of whatever's going on behind the scenes. As somebody who works in um, mental health, what are your thoughts on this, especially as a judge? I think sometimes it's even mentally abusive in a way towards a judge, because let's say I give you a really low mark Mm -hmm. and you come to me to talk about it. I can't, talk with you about it, I have to say, I need to refer you to the chief referee of the event. And so there's U.S. figure skating does not allow for judges to talk with skaters about the marks. It has to go back to the referee. And then if you think the judging pool is small, the referee pool is even smaller. And so then as a judge, I have to trust that the referee is speaking for me. Gotcha. What resources do you think USFS should be supplying their athletes with and their judges, honestly? I I think a great place to start would just be some more transparency and some more 
honesty. And I, I understand there's maybe a, we don't want a free for all of skaters and, and judges talking, but what would the idea, and I wonder if anyone's ever considered, okay, we can talk about this, but I need to bring in the chief referee into the conversation mm. so that there is some oversight, but at least allowing me to say, you know what, Polina, here's why I gave you that 5.5 on transitions. Here's what I saw on the program and here's what I looked for. So I wouldn't be coaching you or saying, here's what you need to do, but I would say, and this is how test judges are instructed to say, this is what I look for in giving a higher level mark, or this is what I saw on the ice. And this is why it corresponds with this mark. And so as test judges, we're allowed to give that feedback on our sheets of here's what I observed, what you did on the ice. So here's why you get that mark. But we don't get, as judges, we don't get a chance to give that direct feedback to skaters except through the referee. Yeah. I, the only time I feel like you'd be able to say anything is if there was a critique event after the competition mm-hmm. and then the judges can kind of have your protocol sheet and go through it with you and then have you show again the elements on the ice so they can take a second look at it. Um, but that's that's more... I want to say more of a local competition summer thing than it is at any other point in the season. And even then, so I've done the judges critiques, but you get assigned. It's just, okay, Carrie, you need to do a critique after the event for the first and the 10th skater. And so it's not even like the, a particular skater can go to a particular judge and say, help me understand your mark. Mm-hmm. They only can do that if they happen to get that judge for their critique. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the difference between a sports psychologist and a regular psychologist, because as an athlete, especially working at the highest level for U.S. figure skating, we would get access to a sports psychologist like once a year at Champs Camp for like an hour session, which most people, Mm -hmm. most skaters weren't really a huge fan of because they don't actually know this person. They're not regularly seeing them. So there isn't this established trust between them. Um, and so I know a lot of skaters used to complain about that in terms of like having your own sport sports psychologist when you go home. Um, some skaters do, which is great, but it's usually them finding it on their own or they can reach out to us for your skating and then they can help supply whoever's in the area. But there's a lot of skaters that just don't use them. But if you ever do need help, us figure skating's number one thing is let's sit you down with a sports psychologist. So Talk to us a little bit about that. Something people need to be informed of that I found a lot of people aren't through no fault of their own is that not all sports psychologists are actually mental health professionals. So when people hear psychologists, they think of if I have depression, they can assess that or diagnose it or they can treat me for that. If we look at the American Psychological Association, APA is the premier organization for psychologists in the United States. Their stance on what a sports psychologist is, is someone who's completed a doctorate in psychology and got licensed as a psychologist. And after doing that, got additional training to work with athletes. 
However, there are many doctoral programs in sports psychology or even master's level programs offered in sports psychology in the US where the people coming out of those programs are not eligible to be licensed psychologists. And so they are trained in sport performance and they can help people enhance their athletic performance. But what they're not trained to do is to assess for diagnose or treat mental illness. And so they might not even recognize red flags in someone that, you know what, the reason why you're feeling unmotivated isn't just to do with your sport. It's because this is a symptom of depression for you and we need to further assess. So something an athlete would want to look for if they want their sports psychologist to also be a mental health professional is to look for the initials LP, licensed psychologist after the person's name, or look for something like LPC, licensed professional counselor, or an LMFT, a licensed marriage and family therapist, or an LMSW, a licensed master social worker. But you wanna see one of those four credentials to know that this person is actually a mental health professional in addition to a sports psychologist. That is so important. I, for one, never knew (laughs) that difference. (laughs) And I know a lot of skaters have really struggled specifically with um, mental health issues. And when they need help, when they look for help, all we get referred to are sports psychologists because all of our internal struggles and issues are supposed to be correlated with skating. Um, And at that point, you're not really fixing a problem. In fact, a lot of skaters get more annoyed going to a sports psychologist because they Mm -hmm. have to talk more and more about the sport that they don't want to talk about and address like completely different issues that... um, is affecting their health in all types of realm, not just when you walk into the ice rink. Um, So I think that's really key. And if anybody is experiencing certain mental health issues, they should look for, um, like you said, somebody with LP after and all of that kind of LP, LPC, like you want to find licensed psychologist or a licensed professional counselor, Mm -hmm. even a marriage and family therapist can do individual therapy. Their name is a bit of a misnomer or a clinical social worker. And if people are just wondering where in my community, can I find somebody? There's a couple different routes people can take. There is 211. If you dial 211, it's similar to 911. If you dial 211, you can get connected to mental health resources in your local community. You can also, if for people who do have some kind of health insurance, you can call the number on the back of your insurance card and ask to be connected to a mental health professional. Another really great resource, because a lot of people either don't have health insurance or for privacy reasons, they don't want to go through insurance for mental health. Psychologytoday.com is a great way to look for mental health providers in your area, and you can even filter by what specialties they have, what kind of a license they have. But it's really important for athletes to look for people who are licensed, just because if you go to a sports psychologist who doesn't have a clinical license, they actually don't have the same legal obligation to keep your information confidential. And if a a lawyer or anyone would ever subpoena the information, they don't have the same doctor client privilege that someone licensed would have. The other big thing to look for in light of the Larry Nassar scandal in gymnastics is that when you go to a sports psychologist who does not have a clinical license, there is no organization for you to report harm to of saying this licensed person hurt me, there needs to be repercussions. 
a license protects the client as much as it protects the clinician because you have an outlet to report problems or abuse that you don't have for unlicensed people. Wow. Very, very important. It's crazy. It, that also brings to mind similarities and that, that kind of difference. The same thing. I've talked about this on past podcasts, especially in terms of body image and resources for people and getting the right um, advice from good information resources. So when you're tracking, you know, what you're eating for sport or outside of sport, there is a difference between a dietitian and a nutritionist. So Carrie, do you want to elaborate a little bit on that? Yeah. And so I actually have a really good friend who is an RDN. It stands for registered dietitian nutritionist. And that's what you really want to look for when you're looking for eating advice, looking at how you can optimize the nutrition for your body and your sport. The terms dietitian and nutritionist get thrown around interchangeably, but they're not. And what a lot of people don't realize is the RDN, the registered dietitian nutritionist, means the person has a minimum of a bachelor's degree and they have a license with their state and they've passed a national licensure exam. Starting in 2024, in order to become an RDN, people will have to have a minimum of a master's degree. Whereas to call yourself a nutritionist, anyone can call themselves that. They can read a book or take a course. Even if they say, I'm a certified nutritionist, it's not, an, it's not a license. It's not a regulated state license. You have no idea what their education might have been, and you're not going to have again, that protection of saying I was harmed by this person. So to be able to know that you can really trust the person's education and what type of exams they had to pass and to know that you're protected as a client or as a patient, you want to always look for those RDN, Registered Dietitian Nutritionist credentials. Absolutely. That's such good information. Thank you for sharing that. <laughs> but yeah, I guess, you know, all in all, I think it's it's really hard to turn this kind of political machine that has the whole world in its grip um, into the right direction, but everything starts at home. And I think we have to start here. We have to start in this country to try to make change, to try to bring attention to these kind of issues. Um, and, you know, with the right example, maybe the rest of the world will follow and change with us. But um, I think it's really important to be protecting our athletes, be encouraging and protecting the right kind of judging and um, really just making steps to improve the sports world in all of those dimensions. Well, and, and I think that's absolutely on, on the mark, Polina. And I think something else people want to look for when they're starting a session with any health professional, especially a mental health professional, is what is in their informed consent document. Uh, do they tell you what kind of disorders that are qualified to treat? Do they tell you what types of treatment they use? Do they, are, are they open and honest with you about, is there a certain type of disorder that they're not qualified to treat? You always want to steer clear of a professional who says, I can do it all, because nobody can be a specialist in everything. I think the other thing that's important to look for is, does that 
mental health professional seek supervision or consultation from other mental health professionals because sometimes people can get in their own zone and they can be blinded by certain things. And so do they let their clients know, I might consult with other people on your case, even though I'm going to protect your confidentiality, I want to make sure I'm not missing anything. And do they give their clients or do they give athletes a chance to say, here's what's not working? I'm hearing you say that many people went to sports psychologists and felt like they were doing even worse from that process because they didn't want to talk about their sport. So does the mental health professional they go to say, I invite you at any time, if I'm going in a direction that doesn't work for you, that you can let me know that and, and we'll switch gears. I think that's really important too, that people are feeling respected and they're feeling included because at the end of the day, they're paying for the services and it's their life on the line, not the person they're seeing. Definitely. So well said. Such great information. All of that. Thank you. Thank you so much, Carrie, for coming on today and giving us all of this. It's been very informative, very amazing. <laughs> yeah, it's just really sad that people out there are just being told, here's who to go see, but they're not they're not given informed consent of who they're seeing and what those limitations are. Mm-hmm. So I, I think athletes should feel welcome to just go to psychologytoday.com or use 211. And the other great thing about 211 is you don't actually have to sign up for a counselor and have ongoing sessions. If someone is just feeling like, I can't handle life today, you can just talk to somebody that day anonymously too. So it's a great source for just, I can't cope with life today, but I need somebody who doesn't know me or know about me or know anything about me. And I don't want to have to give my name. I just want to talk through something. It's a great avenue for that too. Definitely. Yeah. And if ever I can answer any other questions about that, I'm always happy to do so. Um, and, And I'm just wishing all those athletes out there whether they've retired or are contemplating it or are getting ready for the season. I hope people have the resources they need. I I hope people are starting to hear your podcast and knowing that there are other sources out there and there are people out there who care about athletes as people. Mm -hmm. Yes. That one right on. (laughs) Most important part. (laughs) You're, You're a person first. You might even be an athlete third, fourth, or fifth, depending on where it comes in your priority list, but always person first. Definitely. I think that's really important to remember at all ages and at any level you get to in your sport, because um, I think when you start to lose touch with that is when you start to go crazy or you start to fall into way too intense certain emotions, um, because you're not, you're not spreading your eggs out. You're putting everything into one basket and it's just not, it's not what life's about. (laughs) Well, and I think sometimes, and I know this goes back to this topic of the counseling and mental health and psychology and sport, but I, I think parents of athletes should also be thinking about getting counseling services for themselves 
because sometimes parents might find themselves living vicariously through their child. And is it sometimes they need help sorting out, is this my kid's dream or is this my dream? Or even just, I think my child is having problems that they're not recognizing. How do I support them? So people think of sports psychology as just for the athlete, but it really should be there as much for the parents of athletes as it is for the athlete. That's a good point. There's definitely a lot of unnavigated terrain with that in specific um, because, you know, parents are just as invested as their athlete. um, And a lot of parents are really uneducated in whatever sport their kid is trying to perfect. And that can lead to a lot of problems if we have, you know, parents trying too hard to coach their kid without the right background and knowledge or vice versa, you know, their kids going through, whatever hardships in the sport and the parents like don't quite know how to go about it. Um, so yeah, that's another, it's another untapped market right there. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> parents should be seeking services just as much. And another untapped market that I really see for athletes is you don't see a lot of group counseling. So a lot of athletes feel like they're on their own. I've talked with a lot of them who say, I'm, I just retired. Now what? I don't know what to do with my life or I'm going to retire, but what else am I going to do? And why don't we, why isn't there federation support for let's have some group counseling, even across sports. Let's get together athletes across USOPC who might be looking to retire after we have an Olympics this summer. How many of them are probably going to retire after that? Why don't we get a group together? So people don't have to feel so alone. Like I'm the only one who's ever gone through this. Um, People can share resources with each other. People can strategize with each other and just build an ongoing community of support. I don't see, as a mental health professional, I don't see a lot of that happening. Definitely. I think especially in sports like skating, where it is an individual sport, we're just very, very separated from each other. And it's, almost kind of a sign of weakness to be reaching out, asking for help. People are going to, you know, think, oh, they're not as strong as they seem or they're not as strong of a competitor. But in reality, like so many of us are going through so many similar struggles. And um, I think we need to be leaning on each other for support and reaching out to each other to help. And yeah, there, there definitely needs to be more in that, which I do see like with, the older community right now of, um, I feel like people in my skating generation, um, and the generation like right above me, like they're kind of starting to do this and be more open. And like, I've had so much fun reaching out to so many skaters that I haven't talked to in forever, but everyone is so receptive. Everybody's, you know, laying down their stories, talking about all these similarities. Um, and it's, it's really incredible. So I think there's a lot of potential when it comes to that. Well, and I, the one, I guess the last thing I'd I'd like to maybe leave you with, unless something else comes up, but just this notion of burnout. Mm -hmm. And I think there's this perception that in order to go to a counselor or a psychologist, something has to be wrong in order to do that. But that couldn't be further from the truth. It's actually better if people start seeking out help from a counselor or a psychologist, a therapist, when things are going right, because then you can build that rapport with somebody So that when things are going wrong, you already have someone you know and trust to be able to talk to. 
but you might even be able to prevent some of the bad things. You might be able to prevent some of the burnout. Mm -hmm. You can talk with someone about, here's what I like about my sport. Here's going right. And how do you reinforce those things that are going right and start to figure out when things are maybe getting off track right when that's happening. So we can prevent you from going down that road of burnout before you even get on it. That's a really good point. I like that. I think it could also be good to reflect, you know, if you're at the highs of your sport um, to be talking to somebody, you know, getting all of the high emotions out there as well as, you know, anything else. Because a lot of people are also really insecure, even with their big accomplishments. So it can be good to really like talk it out, recognize that, you know, you deserve what you earn. It's not like some random freak accident happened, um, which I think also a lot of athletes struggle with. So yeah. Well, and then even just, let's say you've been working with somebody and you go out and you're on the world's biggest stage. All of a sudden you, Sarah Hughes kind of won the Olympics out of nowhere and then was just thrust into overnight stardom. How do you cope with that at 16 where now the whole world knows your name and wants your autograph and is showing up at your school? How, How do you cope with all that? And then a year later, when it dies down, you go from, I went from everybody knowing my name and wanting to know me and now nobody cares. So how do you cope with that too? So I just think there are so many reasons that people could benefit from having a counselor in their corner that they maybe don't even think about. (laughs) Yeah, because who wants to have to, when you're at your most vulnerable and not feeling good, now you have to trust somebody you don't know. When if you already had that relationship, it's a lot easier to tell someone you trust about the awful days in life than waiting until... Uh, and unfortunately, most people wait until life is unbearable before they seek a therapist. Yeah. Well, I think all of that was really, really great information, great points made, great ideas shared. Um, thank you. Thank you again. Thank you so much for coming on. Yeah. And you have my contact information. If anyone happens to want to get in touch with me after this, I am open to that. Um, I am licensed as a mental health professional in California, Arizona, and Michigan, and I think I'm going to be seeking licensure in Colorado. I do at University of San Diego have a telemental health training clinic, so I do know there are athletes out there where cost is absolutely a barrier to therapy. It's so expensive just to be an athlete and to pay for training time. So another resource that can be put out there is the University of San Diego Telemental Health Training Clinic, where we do have students who are learning to become counselors, but they are supervised. And our phone for that is 619-260-7670. If people need low-cost counseling, that is a resource as well. Amazing. Great. (laughs) Uh, Thanks so much, Paulina. It was great to be able to catch up with you today and talk with you about the ins and outs of the judging system and mental health for athletes. Yeah. Thank you for coming on. (laughs) I hope you guys enjoyed this podcast episode. Please let me know what you think. Subscribe to my channel. Give me a rating. Give me a review. Follow me on my Instagram. That's where I'm promoting this. My username is at Paulina Edmonds and stay tuned for my upcoming episodes. Keep an eye out for them and I can't wait to talk to you guys next week.
thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.